This week, I continue my discussion of precisely how black cemeteries fit into the overall scope of American cemeteries. How were they formed? How were they preserved? And most importantly, what can they tell us about the communities that they represent? I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. So last week, I got a little fired up. I covered the basics of sort of the colonial and antebellum era. And I know I covered a lot of material. And it's because it it is a massive topic. I could easily do a month. I could do two months on it. I did my best to try to compact it down into two episodes that at least give you an idea. And for my own mental health, it's not too overwhelming. Because unfortunately, there is a lot that can bring you down. When you talk about cemeteries in general, but the plight of black cemeteries in particular. So if you've been following along on social media, you know that we had a bit of a dust up here in Atlanta this week over the St. Paul Baptist Church Cemetery, which is located in DeKalb County, which is actually the county I live in. It's one of the surrounding counties around Atlanta. Part of the city of Atlanta is actually in DeKalb. And if you're interested in hearing the whole story, I'm not going to go into it here. It's worth listening to. And I may have gone on a bit of a rant on social media the next day being like, I don't know why anybody is surprised that there is a black cemetery under a road in Atlanta. Look at all of these places that used to be cemeteries. And I started posting pictures of Lincoln Park and Washington Square Park and the Frank Palumbo Recreation Center in Philadelphia and... On and on and on. And I got a bunch of messages from people saying, that happened in my town. That happened in my city. And it's very easy to let it bring you down. And certainly I'm going to talk about urban renewal and why urban renewal disproportionately affected black cemeteries. But I also, I tried to at least find some high notes in here. There's a lot that can bring us down. But I think that there are important lessons to be learned. And, you know, I was very lucky when I did this research. And last week I thought I had kind of done all the research I needed to do for this. And because I'm a masochist, I kept kind of like just poking at it until I found more. And I'm glad I did. Because it's not enough just to tell the stories. You have to understand why they happened. And I will say... I was shocked because there were a couple of very important things that never would have occurred to me. And this, of course, is the disadvantage to being a white woman who is telling this story. And it's interesting because I had a conversation with um, a fellow history and particularly map enthusiast here in Atlanta that I know. And, you know, he discussed with me, you know, aren't you concerned that you're trying to play the white savior? And I think it's worth noting, just for the record, that I think everybody has to be conscious of that. And my response was that I realize that as a upper middle class white person, I do have a certain level of privilege in the sense that I was able to go not just to college, but to get a graduate degree, that I was able to get a job in architectural history and historic preservation, And that part of having the privilege to have those degrees and to have the job that I have, I personally believe as a human being, it obligates me to use that information that I got, that education that I was privileged enough to get, to use that to help others in any way I can, regardless of what their race is. But unfortunately, the truth is, is that, and I talked about this last week too, that Blacks, people of color, indigenous people, you name it, the minorities are underrepresented in all branches of academia. But I will say that I can only speak as a preservationist. You know, I can also speak as a teacher. I will tell you, in 12 years of teaching, I never taught with a black teacher. I taught in three different states. Four. Never taught with a black teacher. That's a problem. Like I could say if it was, you know, if I was teaching in one particular state where I just happen to have a very small black population. No, that shows a problem across the board. And the same thing goes for preservation. But 
I also recognize that in terms of preservation, black cemeteries are already coming at it from a disadvantage because they don't necessarily have people in their community that can do that. That's not to say that that isn't changing. I have met an incredible amount of black preservationists in the past few years who are working within their communities, who are looking to raise awareness. And I hope that that trend will continue in the future. But for now, I do feel obligated just to help my fellow man in whatever way I can. That's just my long, you know, two or three minute diatribe to to explain that, again, I am trying to give you the information as best I can to help people understand situations that they might not have encountered before. To maybe motivate you to do something about it and to spread awareness. Because when those stories come up in the news and when other people dismiss them or when other people don't understand them, you can come at it with a little bit more background knowledge. And if I do that, I'm already a little bit ahead of the curve. So where last we spoke, I was sort of leaning towards the Reconstruction era. So following the Civil War and emancipation, we start to have a couple of things happen. You start to have the growth of independent free black communities. Now, this looks very different depending on where you are in the country. I did kind of allude to the fact last week when I was talking about indentured servants and things like that who may have learned trades from their masters. I talked about the John Stevens shop in Newport, for example. The same thing happens in the Reconstruction era where you start to see a certain mimicking of existing institutions. Now, I came across a very interesting analysis of black funerary practices. And this is something that I admit, the more I read, the more it really kind of viscerally got me in the gut because it basically was telling me like, this is not a story that you necessarily understand. And so part of it I kind of talked about last week, I mentioned the scene in Roots where Kizzy crosses out her father's slave name Toby and puts his African name Kunta Kinte on the headstone. And so I thought about that. I thought about the idea of loss of identity, which of course, slavery in and of itself is a loss of identity. Slaves not only were taken from their homes, but they were brought to a white society which sought to change everything about them. It sought to, first of all, evangelize. That was seen as one of the the great things about slavery was that it, you know, it, it brought Christianity to the heathens. Their words, not mine. Now, I think that in the earlier days, they were able to keep some of their cultural practices. I talked last week about, you know, the shaping of certain stones and the use of certain stones and things like that. Some practices... And I'm trying to think of like a really common one, something like jumping the broom. You know, when marriages weren't necessarily legal, it was a symbolic marriage gesture. There is also a identity that develops around people who are enslaved just out of necessity. Because we don't think about it today, but when you have people coming from different places, from different tribal backgrounds, different languages you get a natural development of a certain melting pot and then a culture of its own emerges. It has been argued that funerary practices are in many ways the oldest and most consistent values of the black community. And I can certainly see this in some practices, things like the use of a conch shell on the graves of Gullah Geechee, But I think that there is also just a natural evolution for a lot of reasons. Now, in the Jim Crow era, starting after the Civil War, as much as emancipation may have changed things, Jim Crow also halted a lot of what it changed. So while during the early Reconstruction era, you have this sort of burst of black culture that begins... Um, certainly, if you know anything about the history of black legislators and things like that, this is when you have, like in the 1870s, the development of a lot of the early black cemeteries, whether they are church cemeteries or whether they are independent cemetery corporations. But Jim Crow, it does a couple of things. Either it forces 
blacks to migrate north immediately because they're trying to get away from Jim Crow, or it essentially halts this continuing diaspora of the black people um, because there's so much control. There's control over movement. Think things like sundown towns. There's control financially. There's control politically in the power that they have, voter suppression, things like that. So what happens is, is that you get caught in these cycles, whether it's a cycle of something like convict labor, whether it's vagrancy, whether it is sharecropping, all of these things are a result of Jim Crow. Likewise, these things halt a lot of practices that otherwise might have developed. But they also develop, I won't say exactly parallel, but almost parallel practices. So you do have the rise of black funeral homes. These funeral homes, interestingly enough, often had to send those who wanted to study for mortuary school to the North to get training. Um, I was reading one article that talked about how a lot of them went to Chicago because there were mortuary schools that were willing to take black students there. But that being said, some of these black undertakers were some of the most skilled at their profession. And it's disturbing to think about now, but I read one article that said, quote, the embalming of black bodies often requires a repair job that masks the residue of a violent death. And it's, it's something interesting that I don't think many of us think about today, but the fact that the emergence of a highly skilled profession has its roots in racism and violence. And you might say, well, you know, this is an example of being able to better themselves, but they're bettering themselves at, as a reflection of this underlying violence and hatred, which I really wish that there was a reason <laughs> that they could not do that. But um, likewise, um, segregation. Um, the majority of blacks were not eligible for traditional health insurance or life insurance. And so as a result, they formed their own organizations, whether it was actual you know, black banks, black insurance agencies, or often things like benevolent societies or burial societies to help those who would otherwise not be able to afford a funeral. So this separate, almost parallel culture is emerging out of the fact that they are not part of mainstream culture. So for good or for ill, the only reason that this, these black cultural institutions emerge is because of segregation. Now I say this because one thing that never occurred to me was that post-civil rights, desegregation also did away with a lot of this culture. And this is something that didn't necessarily occur to me because here in Atlanta, we still have a very strong, separate, but roughly parallel black culture. So there's still a strong tradition of black funeral homes. There's still a strong tradition of black cemeteries. It is not that way in every city. Because with desegregation, there were more options. And so this meant less money to exclusively black businesses in many places. So if before, your only option was to be buried in a black cemetery, once cemeteries were desegregated, you could spend your money elsewhere. You could choose to be buried in a desegregated white cemetery. You could choose to go to a white funeral home. Again, these are things that never occurred to me, but this is why there is a sharp decline, and it's one of the reasons that many black cemeteries start hemorrhaging money and cannot keep up their grounds. Likewise, with not just white flight, but with a migration, there is a disconnect. So obviously there is a great migration north from the south at a certain point, but in addition to that, It's not like you're able to go back to your ancestors' graves if you were born enslaved. You know, post-emancipation, you move on. And I know that's not everybody's story, but for many, they moved on. And so this tight link to cemeteries 
as part of the however limited black diaspora is one of the reasons that there are not as cogent ties where they have to continuously chase this elusive American dream. And it certainly is the story of cemeteries in general that, you know, families move away, they migrate to a different part of the country and they're not going back to take care of grandma's grave. But even more so with black cemeteries too, because almost inherently they are also in the poorest least desirable areas of cities. So, for example, I think about something like Southview. Southview here in Atlanta. What's it right next to? Oh, the federal penitentiary. It's on undesirable land that otherwise people did not want. And that was the only land available for development by black citizens. So, controversy, land that's already undesirable, land that for whatever reason is not as easily protected or as well upkept, can also certainly play into a decline. And I lay out all of this stuff kind of at the beginning of this episode because, you know, the question is always like, well, why are black cemeteries in such bad shape? Black cemeteries that are not nearly as old as many white cemeteries, black cemeteries that are large, that have corporations behind them, like what happens there? How do they go off the rails? And this was something that I struggled with. And, you know, it's easy just to say incipient racism and move on. But when you actually trace this out, damn, it makes a lot of sense. And it certainly it connected a lot of dots for me. So I wanted to start with that. And I, and I will give a lot of credit to one really amazing doctoral thesis I read, um, written by a young lady named Brittany Brown who got her PhD in anthropology from the College of William and Mary in 2018. Her paper, Ancestral Landscapes, a study of historic black cemeteries and contemporary practices of commemoration among African Americans in Duval County, Jacksonville, Florida, really helped me connect. And I wish I'd had time to read her entire thesis. Um, It was close to 300 pages, though, and sadly, I only have so many hours in a day, but you know, her study of the Moncrief cemeteries, which are on the north side of Jacksonville, encompassed something like 70,000 burials. And I had actually seen photographs of some of these um, at AGS. Um, the Florida Public Archaeology Network had actually featured a few of these. So I'd actually seen some photos of these before. So it was nice for me to be able to connect the dots. And these are all 20th century cemeteries. Um, Memorial founded in 1907, Sunset Memorial Park in 1917, Pinehurst in 1928, and I did not write down when Mount Olive was founded, but probably sometime roughly around then. So we're talking cemeteries who are 100, 120 years old. They're all 20th century cemeteries, and yet they are all facing all of these struggles for all of the reasons that I just enumerated, where they're located. You know, the migration of people out of the city. Loss of money to black businesses. Another really interesting point that she brought up, and this is something, again, like I feel very white saying this, like I've always noticed it. You will see on the back of cars, you know, on the back window of cars, you will see on t-shirts, you will see keychains, bumper stickers, all sorts of memorial items, And I'm not saying that this is an exclusively black practice, but it's certainly one that I see far more in black families, where it will have a photograph of the deceased with their birth and death dates, where it will show, you know, it will, you know, say, you know, missing you in heaven or like these memorial items in many ways are a far more tangible and far more cultural response to death than, say, a traditional burial and visiting the cemetery every weekend. And it could be part of the secularization of death, a move away from traditional church values, but I think also it's just, it's more of an expression of current black culture. So I thought that that was a really interesting observation, too, is the fact that we're just moving further away from cemeteries. Um, I will say I think white yuppie people are moving back to cemeteries because they are... I know they see them sort of as a cultural equivalent of, I don't even know what you would compare them to, 
But I feel like it's all the white yuppies with their dogs and their strollers walking through Greenwood and Brooklyn. Same as the craft beer crowd, now that I think about it. And I say this as somebody who really likes craft beer. I mean, I somewhat am apologizing for my people, but I think that that, I mean, for a long time, the attitude towards rural cemeteries was not good. Most of the 20th century. And I'm talking about like mainstream white rural cemeteries. But I think they're kind of having a renaissance to a certain degree, and the pandemic has helped that. So those are some things to think about when we think about just black cemeteries in general. Now, keep in mind, until the 1950s, it is stated that 90% of all public cemeteries are segregated. Private cemeteries probably significantly more than that. Now, one of the things I really want to look at is I want to look at the history legally. If you remember your history class, and I'm going to briefly go over this, I mean, at least the way I was taught it, you know, following the Civil War, you have the passing of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. Then in 1896, you have Plessy versus Ferguson, which establishes separate but equal. And then in 1954, you have Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, which effectively ends segregation. And I can remember I had been in Georgia, well, no, Atlanta, not Georgia, but Atlanta for maybe two or three months. And I went to a public meeting. And this public meeting, I believe, was in Marion County, Georgia. And it was in a recreation center that was clearly an old school. If I had to guess, the school was probably from the 40s, maybe the 50s. And I can remember we were waiting for the meeting to start. It was in kind of like the old school auditorium or cafetorium, if you will. And I walked to where the restrooms were and I was caught off guard because I saw this huge poster sized display and it was one of the old fashioned class photos, you know, where everybody has like their own little bubble. And it was for the class of 1970. And that's when I realized that the building I was in was the black high school. And that in 1970, Marion County, Georgia, was still segregated. So 1970, that's 16 years after Plessy versus Ferguson. So while I was still processing that, and and of course, like later I thought about it and I was like, I remembered, you know, the riots in South Boston, those were in like 70, 71. So like this should not have come as a shock to me because I was 30 something years old and had a degree in history and I should have known better. But then later, the superintendent of schools came in, a black man, and I asked him, I said, can I ask you, I said, what school this used to be? He's like, oh, this used to be the high school. He's like, this is where I graduated from. And I'm looking at a guy who was in his 40s, probably late 40s. And here in America, I don't think that we think about people in their late 40s, early 50s as having lived in segregated America. But then again, I look at the fact that Ruby Bridges... She and my mother are the same age. They were both born in 1954. My mother's probably going to kill me now because I told everybody how old she is. It's not that long ago. It's pretty recent history. And I say all this because when I go through these laws, what you're going to realize is that the end of segregation is a far more complicated narrative than you or I were taught in school. To hit those three big milestones, you know, emancipation, Plessy versus Ferguson, Brown versus the Board of Education, it just doesn't, it's not nuanced enough. It dumbs it down too much. And so when it comes to cemetery law, it's actually fairly complicated. But I want to go through it because, and I alluded to this particular article about um, segregation in cemeteries last week, understanding legally how these lawyers weaseled their way around things, I think puts a lot into perspective. 
So I will start with the earliest case and I will finish with the latest one. And the latest one, you will give a little bit of a cheer because it's it's a happy ending. But I think it's it's a tough journey because it goes both ways and it's not super clear always whether the courts are being fair. And I understand, even though now I'm not a lawyer, I understand that they can only interpret the law. They're not rewriting it. But still. Actually, before I do that, I do want to pause. And I want to pause because there is... It's so interesting when you start doing research into this, everyone loves to cite the example of Thaddeus Stevens. And I think he's worth mentioning. So an ardent abolitionist, um, Stevens um, was the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee during the Civil War, and at the time he was a Lincoln Republican. And he personally insisted um, when he died in 1868, so shortly after the end of the Civil War, that his burial be in an interracial cemetery in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And he certainly felt pretty strongly about this because he actually chose his own epitaph. And he said, quote, I repose in this quiet and secluded spot, not from any natural preference for solitude, but finding other cemeteries limited as to race by charter rules. I have chosen this that I may illustrate in my death the principles which I advocated through a long life, equality of man before the creator. And I say this because when you contrast it to the experiences of so many others, and this is probably a good time to bring up W.E.B. Dubois, because I'm sure that I probably knew this story before, but I had forgotten it. Um, if only, you know, I could let go of all those song lyrics from from high school dances to clear up space for the life of W.E.B. Dubois. I would be a far richer person, I'm sure, but sadly the brain doesn't work that way. So Dubois, um, obviously, if you are not familiar with him, I'm not sure how that happened, but he was raised in a relatively kind and benevolent society in Great Barrington in Western Massachusetts in a very tolerant, um, inclusive society. So he was, you know, not surprisingly shocked when he came to the South. And the most famous example is that his son, so his firstborn son, he only had two children, um, whose name was Berghart, um, that was the B in W.E.B. Um, it was born on October 2nd, 1897. So keep in mind that this is now a year after Plessy versus Ferguson if we're going by that old-fashioned calendar of black civil rights. So his son became sick around the age of 18 months. Now, at the time, that he, he had been born in Massachusetts, but they had moved to Atlanta. And he was ill with diphtheria, and they could not convince a doctor to come to the house to treat his son. And so his son eventually dies May 24th, 1899, of diphtheria at the age of 18 months. And he recounts this in one of the chapters of The Souls of Black Folk, which, if you have not read it, it's... It's a seminal work of black literature. It's it's definitely worth reading, but I thought it was interesting because he says, quote, We could not lay him in the ground here in Georgia, for the earth there is strangely red. So he bore him away northward with his flowers and his little folded hands. In vain, in vain, for where, O oh God, beneath thy broad blue sky, Shall my dark baby rest in peace where reverence dwells and goodness and a freedom that is free. It's so interesting because he talks about, you know, prior to the burial, you know, talks, he, he talks about how there, there are these white folks mocking them from beyond the fence and, you know, his experience in mourning. And so eventually he 
takes his son back to Massachusetts where he's from and he's buried at um Mahaiwe, I think it's pronounced M-A-H-A-I-W-E cemetery in Great Barrington where later on uh W-E-B and his his wife will be scattered well their ashes will be buried because they are eventually cremated um I found a great letter in his archives where he actually asked permission to do that. This is 1947, so he was about 80 years old, and he wanted to make sure it was acceptable to have his ashes buried, which I think is interesting because obviously it shows like sort of the rising prevalence of cremation, but how it's also kind of like borderline and people are still not sure if it's seen as pagan or not. So in the world of cemeteries, I thought that was kind of an interesting little touch that he was asking permission, even though he's clearly a lot holder. And I also have a copy, I'll, maybe I'll post this, it's kind of, it's very cool, um, of his actual deed of when he purchased the lot, um, March 7th, 1900, and they actually like record what time he purchased it, and it has all of the particulars, but it's always fun to find those little tidbits where cemeteries intersect with pretty significant history of people that everybody knows. But again, this is after Plessy versus Ferguson, after separate but equal, the idea that, you know, there should have been an equal opportunity for his son to receive medical treatment, and he died because he did not receive that treatment. Now, the first challenge to racial restrictive covenants occurs in 1876 in Pennsylvania with the Mount Moriah Cemetery Association versus the state of Pennsylvania. Um, definitely I've talked about Mount Moriah before. It This was the abandoned cemetery in South Philadelphia that has been brought back to life by volunteers. And what happened in this case was that a white man named Bolo, B-O-I, or Boilo, B-O-I-L-E-A-U, had a large plot. And to make some money, he sold a portion of the plot This is where I'm not exactly clear, but at least the majority of the plot he sold to a black couple, to a husband and wife. He did so not like under the table, not without anybody's knowledge. He did this in front of the superintendent of the cemetery and the secretary of the cemetery, both of whom were white men. So they witnessed it. They signed off on it. They saw the transaction go down. So this black couple begin to improve the plot, you know, they clean it up, they plant flowers, so-and-so, and so, um, the sister of the wife is buried there with no issue. These are the Joneses, by the way. A few years later, when Mr. Jones dies, his wife makes preparation for his burial at Mount Moriah. Fifteen minutes before the burial, they receive a note at home that he cannot be buried there because the plot still technically belongs to the white man, to Mr. Boileau. Now, Boileau gives permission. He gives written permission, says, I have no problem with this. You know, like, they owned that portion of the plot. I gave it to them. You know, we, we made a deal. But still, when they arrive, the cemetery superintendent still refuses on the basis that there have been objections from other lot holders. And so as a result, the body had to be placed in the receiving tomb, not at Mount Moriah, but at another cemetery. Now, again, this is very interesting because there had literally been no objection before this. As I said, her sister was buried there, no problem. There had been no discussion of it. So this in and of itself is curious. And you have to say, okay, so who is protesting? And it's a worthwhile question. Now, the cemetery has something very, very specific to say. Legal action commenced and the Defendant Cemetery Association claimed that Jones was not entitled to relief with the Secretary of the Cemetery Association, answering the complaint that they refused to permit the transfer of the lot, reporting that, quote, so great is the opposition on the part of a large majority of our many thousand lot holders to the internment of colored persons in the cemetery among their deceased friends and relatives that if we were to permit it, it would probably lead to acts of violence and breaches of the peace. 
large numbers of the dead already interred here would therein be removed. The association would be financially ruined and compelled to leave thousands of existing graves to the result of abandonment and neglect. And those who have already paid us their money and obtained rights, which is our duty to protect, would thus be greatly wronged and injured. Wow. That is a bold statement. Particularly knowing how bad Mount Moriah goes to seed in the future. Heck, one of the people on their cemetery committee was dumping dead bodies in empty mausoleums six months ago. I posted that on my stories. There's been some crazy stuff that goes down at Mount Moriah. Well, in this case, interestingly enough, you would think that in that the cemetery association would win, but in fact they don't. So the Commonwealth demurred, and the Court of Common Pleas issued the opinion which found that the refusal of the cemetery to allow the burial of Jones's husband was arbitrary and unreasonable, and therefore an unlawful interference with the legal rights of the owner of the soil. So it's so interesting because in this case, they are ruling simply on property rights. And the fact that the superintendent and the secretary had witnessed it means that they had acknowledged the legal rights of the Joneses to hold that property. Now, Mount Moriah obviously continued to grow by leaps and bounds. So I think it's pretty obvious that uh, thousands of lot holders did not flee in terror. But what it does is it makes a very racial line in the sand. Where Mount Moriah says, well, you know, like they may have pulled one over our eyes, but, you know, we're not going to fall for it again. Now, it takes quite a while for the next step to happen. But you get a number of these cases where things essentially fall through the cracks. So Forest Lawn Memorial Park, the famous, you know, grandpappy of all memorial parks in Glendale, California, for example... In um, Forest Lawn Memorial Park Association versus D. Jarnett um, sued a black woman who had purchased a plot. And in this case, they won the lawsuit and the woman was not able to retain her lot because there was a Caucasians only clause because the man who had sold it to her claimed she had essentially hoodwinked him. And he said, I couldn't tell she was black. She looked Caucasian to me, and so she knowingly deceived me and didn't tell me she was black. And so they essentially sided with him and said, you know, like, if he had realized it, that this was an honest mistake, if he had realized that she was black, he never would have sold it to her. And so they were able to revoke the rights. Gaskill versus Forest Home Cemetery Corporation. This is maybe one of the saddest. They instituted a um, restrictive covenant, but it was after the cemetery was founded. So this was later on, clearly a racist Jim Crow era move, uh, which banned non-Caucasians from burial with the exception of existing lot holders who already owned plots. So basically they were grandfathered in. Now, there was a man who had four small children who had all died and who had been buried in plots prior to the institution of this Caucasian-only clause. So when his wife died, he wanted to purchase an additional plot because there was no more room in the plot he already owned, so that way the whole family could all be buried at least in the same cemetery, if not right in the same plot. And they refused, saying that his clause allowed him to retain ownership and burial rights for the plot he already owned but did not extend to purchasing another plot and in this case the court ruled that unfortunately civil rights clauses do not apply do not extend to cemeteries so if he had say owned a piece of land 
and they tried to revoke whatever right or privilege, you know, because he still owned that land, he would still have it. Or if he wanted to make improvements on that land, like you couldn't stop him from building a house on that land for whatever reason because of a restricted covenant. This is very interesting because essentially it's a sneaky way around the ruling that had already been made in Mount Moriah. Now, in Mount Moriah, she was not trying to purchase another plot, so there is an important distinction. But still, before they made the argument that, you know, legal property rights did matter, here they're saying, eh, not really. Like, the only legal property rights that matter are the ones that you have on paper. There is no extension and wiggle room with that. The next big movement is um, Rice versus Sioux City. Memorial Park, which happens in 1953. And this is the famous case that actually that 90% of public cemeteries are segregated. This is the famous court case where this actually kind of comes to pass. Um, They said, quote, the restriction to members of the Caucasian race is almost as old as the cemetery business and has come down with the development of said cemetery business. This restriction is in probably 90% of the private cemeteries in the United States. Now, I've seen it listed as both ways, both public and private. Now, Sioux City is, this is an important case because it starts in 1951, where Sergeant John Rice, who was a member of the Winnebago tribe, um, was killed in combat in Korea. And his body was repatriated from Korea, and at the point where he was actually being buried, like the coffin was being lowered, it was at the cemetery, he was then informed that he could not be buried there because the cemetery clause instituted was only for members of the Caucasian race. His widow, whose name is Evelyn, um, it's interesting because she did a lot of interviews about this because obviously like the humiliation and literally you're standing there over his grave at probably one of the worst moments of your life and you're just being denied this, right? It's pretty brutal. Um, I will give Truman credit because Truman actually steps in and says, whoa, 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 whoa. you can bury him at Arlington. Let's bury him at Arlington. And I will say that this, I actually bring up Sioux City versus Rice first because Truman in many ways saw the writing on the wall. I'm not sure if he was still kind of reeling from World War II and seeing some of the racial tensions that had happened. But it's important to remember that the real true cemetery legislation that matters is 1948's Shelley versus Kramer which ruled that state enforcement of racially restrictive covenants was unconstitutional under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Now, just weeks after Shelley v. Kramer is decided, Executive Order 9981 is issued by Truman, which officially desegregates the military. I think Truman saw the writing on the wall. But... What you have to understand is that Shelley versus Kramer, obviously based on the fact that Rice versus Sioux City Memorial Park happens, it still is going to municipal cemeteries. They're talking about municipal cemeteries. They're talking about public cemeteries. Private cemeteries still can. And later on, there will be determinations where, for example, you know, you might have a Memorial Park cemetery that has community mausoleums. And I read about one case where there were three community mausoleums. One was designated Caucasian only. And so when a person of color tried to be entombed there, they said no. And when they tried to take it to court, the court ruled with the cemetery saying, like, you know, like, these are three identical mausoleums. Like, you're not having your rights restricted because they're not saying you can't be buried in a mausoleum. They're just saying that, like, you have to be buried in one of three and it can't be that one. Again, I'm not a lawyer. I don't interpret the law, but a lot of this seems ugh, like very, very sketchy to me. Like some of these rulings seem like they are splitting hairs to a certain degree. So how does this end? Well, it doesn't end until 1969 
which <laughs> again is something that I think that most people would be very surprised about. But then again, I just told my story about me and my silly misunderstanding about the class in 1970 down in Marion County. So on July 3rd, 1969, an African-American soldier named Bill Terry Jr. died in Vietnam. Like generations of African-American soldiers before him, stretching back to the American Revolution, Terry died fighting for his country. Because of his honorable army record, Terry was given the traditional military escort back to his home in Birmingham, Alabama, where his body was taken to Elmwood Cemetery to begin the internment process. When Terry's widow and mother attempted to purchase a burial plot for Terry's remains, they were refused by the cemetery manager. The reason, Terry was black. Since the other funeral arrangements were already in place, Terry's widow and mother purchased a plot in Chatelon Memorial Park, a traditionally black cemetery, and proceeded with the internment. During the same time period, another African-American was denied a purchase of a burial plot at Elmwood and joined Terry's widow and mother in filing suit in the district court against the cemetery. The plaintiffs alleged, quote, unlawful discrimination against Negroes as a class by Elmwood, which discrimination constitutes a badge or incident of slavery, contrary to the 13th Amendment of the Constitution of the United States and the 1866 Civil Rights Act. In response, the cemetery pointed to the rules and regulations adopted by Elmwood in 1954, which provided the pertinent part. Direct quote here. Quote, Cemetery lots shall be owned only by human beings of the white and or Caucasian race, and the said lots shall be used for the burial of human bodies of the white and or Caucasian race. And such ownership and use shall at all times be subject to the rules and regulations and bylaws of Elmwood, now or hereafter in force. Any attempted transfer of a lot or interest in a lot to one not authorized to own the same shall be invalid and of no force and effect, and the corporation shall not be obligated to honor any such transfer. They learned from Mount Moriah's mistakes, apparently. Based on this section, the cemeteries say that they were justified in refusing sale to Terry's wife and widow because Elmwood had a policy of refusing burial in its cemetery to persons other than Caucasians, which is based on the fact that all lot deed for grave sites at the cemetery contain a provision limiting internment at Elmwood to members of the Caucasian race. In arriving at their decision, the district court examined whether a burial plot constituted property under the 1866 Civil Rights Act. After the court defined property right as a type of relationship was entitled to protection from a decision maker, they determined that it may be conclusively established that interests in cemetery lots are property rights. Now, this is the end of a long journey. Like I said, they've been talking about this since 1876 at this point. The court held that under the act, Elmwood was, quote, legally obligated to sell burial plots in its public cemetery to all United States citizens on equal terms without regard to race or color and has unlawfully abridged plaintiff's rights under such statute by refusing to sell them lots solely because they are Negroes. The court invalidated all of Elmwood's rules and regulations that were contrary to this holding. Following an outpouring of public support from both Birmingham and the rest of the country, Bill Terry's body was subsequently exhumed and reburied in Elmwood Cemetery on January 3, 1970. 1,200 marchers followed Terry's body from Our Lady of Fatima Church to Elmwood Cemetery, where Friar Eugene J. Farrell told the marchers, quote, We are rejoicing, not mourning. This is not really a funeral march. This is a victory march for Billy, for truth, and for right. I mean, as much of an honor as this is, I mean, I'm not really sure I'd want to spend all of eternity with Bear Bryant myself. And I know that's fighting words. I'm just kidding. I don't really have an opinion one way or another about Bear Bryant. He had a cool hat. I like the I like the houndstooth, but yeah. Elmwood is probably most famous. I mean, a lot of people are buried in Elmwood, but Bear Bryant is probably the most famous recent celebrity buried there. That's not to say that there was nothing that happened after this. There certainly has been. But legally, that's sort of when things started to fall apart. But then again, last month you had this happen in Louisiana where they claimed that there was a Caucasians-only 
clause written in the 1950s that they had to break down. So that's the legal end of segregation in cemeteries. What are some of the other problems that we have faced when it comes to black cemeteries in the 20th century? Well, I found a few interesting examples. So, first of all, urban renewal is something I I didn't go too deep into, but (laughs) when I was doing the research on W.E.B. Du Bois, I found a great quote from him where he said, quote, when I went home again, my log cabin schoolhouse was gone and in its place was progress and progress, I understand, is necessarily ugly. Wow. That's like the poster statement for urban renewal. Because there's very little that's not inherently racist about urban renewal. Certainly most American cities are currently divided along racial lines because of urban renewal. Heck, in Savannah, urban renewal physically segregated the cemetery. Lower Grove North on one side of I-16, white. Lower Grove South on the other side of I-16, black. You can't tell me they didn't pave over a few graves in between. Here in Atlanta, I-20. Physical barrier between black and white in Atlanta. So, Urban renewal in those senses, but urban renewal as an extension. Not only physically separated communities, in many cases it cut communities off, both from like the working center of the city, but also from cemeteries. So a lot of cemeteries do decline because of urban renewal, because placing highways or breaking up neighborhoods and things like that. Cemeteries are also easy targets for urban renewal to be removed This happens in a massive way. Perhaps there's no better example than the city of Tampa. So if you're following um, (laughs) the Black Cemeteries Disaster Month, if you can call it that, um, last week on February 19th, last Friday, they broke um, the fact that the North Greenwood Cemetery, which was active from 1940 to 1954, which was supposedly removed in 1954 to make way for Pinellas High School and a public swimming pool. They didn't remove all the graves. Amazing. Isn't that crazy? They, they said they removed them. They didn't. Boy, does that sound familiar. So they have found evidence of 29 graves which were missed. Um, the rest of the graves are supposedly removed to Park Lawn. It was only seven miles to the north. No, no, no big deal. No big deal at all. This is my favorite fact. Urban renewal. We're going to build a public pool. We're going to build this beautiful school. The public pool is gone. It was demolished like 20 years after it was built. The school is now empty and abandoned. Explain to me how that's going. But they have found, you know, significant evidence of graves, um, including coffin hardware, fragments of coffins, actual physical grave markers, um, as well as, you know, broken pieces of concrete burial vault. So this is breaking news. It just broke last Friday. So certainly we're going to be hearing more about that. But the best part is, is legitimately for like the last five years, I have to wonder what were they doing during urban renewal in Tampa? Seriously. So in 2018, this is a big story. You probably heard this. Um, Zion Cemetery in Tampa, which was the first black cemetery established in the city. Again, supposedly was removed um, when the Tampa Housing Authority built the Robles Park Village. So public housing project. A lot of cemeteries in general got removed for public housing. That was a big move that they loved to make. Public housing, schools, playgrounds, parks, all of it's like, oh, these things are going to improve the city. They're much better than this, you know, nasty old graveyard. Well, they discovered the ground penetrating radar that that whole thing is built on graves. There are something to the tune of 300 graves that were missed. Um, and there are great pictures out there. I remember when this story first broke a couple years ago. 
seeing these, um, you know, ground penetrating radar kind of like 3D projections where they have like these two sets of public housing units that kind of like face each other and literally like all in between you can see it. like like the basically the backyards of these are just all graves, all graves underneath it. Um, King High School um, back in November. They broke that it was built on 145 graves from Ridgewood Cemetery, which is the Potter's Field. Not exclusively black, um, but majority black. Um, McDill Air Force Base, which was built in 1941. Um, We know that part of the base was built on a cemetery. There is no documentation that any part of that cemetery was ever moved. We know that there were at least 38 graves, 12 of which were infants. Building Air Force bases on babies. But we needed it for the war effort, right? It was 41. Um, St. Matthew's Missionary Baptist Church, which eventually was the site of a department store. They discovered 70 graves. Um, It was in use from 1909 to 1955. Like, seriously, like, the 50s, late 50s through early 60s, just the sweeping urban renewal. But essentially every 20th century black cemetery in Tampa was paved over. Like I said, like you have to bring up Tampa because literally, like all this has come out in like the last five years. Like what were they doing down there? And I wish I could say that they're unique. Not at all. They really aren't. One of my... This is maybe a good thing to end on. I Well, I actually have, I have good news at the end, so I'm going to save the good news for the end. But this, this, this story... Really kind of blew my mind. So, in Montgomery County, Maryland, in Bethesda, the River Road Moses Cemetery was the subject of a lot of controversy. So, in 2015, the black community came forward. They knew the cemetery was there. And they knew that developers had plans for this. So, they really started to get a push on it because in Montgomery County, if something is landmarked or protected, you know, the developer can't develop it. And they part of their argument was that the Aspen Hill Pet Cemetery, yes, you heard me correctly, the Aspen Hill Pet Cemetery is in fact a landmark historic site in Montgomery County. So significant that they actually won a prestigious preservation award, the Wayne Goldstein Award from Montgomery Preservation Incorporated for the work of Julianne Mangan, who documented and advocated for the cemetery to get it listed. And I'm sure Julianne is a lovely woman, but to get it listed as a historic site. Now, The River Road Moses Cemetery is a black cemetery containing roughly 500 burials. Underline black cemetery. So in 2015, they started this. 2016, they started to push the county to fast track it because they knew that the plans for development were going faster and faster. The county shelved it, declined to act, declined to provide historic designation. Now it is a parking lot. It was paved over as part of the Westwood Tower Apartments. There is basically parking structure on the majority of the cemetery. This is something that's happened in the last five years. A county that finds a pet cemetery somehow more significant than a black cemetery. A black cemetery with living descendants. People who could give public oral histories. And I actually read, they, I mean, and they did everything right, this black community. They hired archaeologists. They hired somebody to do the history of the cemetery, provided maps. Like, they had every piece of documentation they needed. It wasn't like something vague, like, hey, we know there might be a cemetery here. Like, they had every piece of documentation that they needed. And granted, I, I read this blog post that was like just comparing and contrasting with the pet cemetery. And it, it it is like almost laughable to a certain degree. And yes, I know people love their pets. But I'm sorry, at the end of the day, no matter how much you love your pet, it's still not a human being. The fact that the county saw fit to make a statement by designating a pet cemetery as a landmark, but didn't 
seriously consider this black cemetery, it proves that the problems are still going on. It proves that you can have as many legal rulings as you want, but that incipient racism doesn't change. Those underlying problems don't change. The fact that this cemetery may have looked neglected and didn't look like a cemetery that they would expect doesn't change, but that is a result of so many different cultural features that, you know what, just because it doesn't look like you expect a cemetery to look, just just because it doesn't have that shiny buff to it, doesn't mean that it's any less significant. And I'm starting to sound like a broken record with that, but I maintain everybody deserves a dignified marked burial. So I know I promised good news. There is good news. A couple of things. So I want to start with a piece from last week that I didn't end up mentioning because I didn't really have a way to work it in. So I was talking a lot about those particularly slave cemeteries in Virginia. Well, Virginia has taken this very seriously. So in 2017, they passed a bill almost unanimously in support of, well, the way that it was originally written, um, cemeteries before 1900 operated by a government entity or a nonprofit. They later expanded the bill to include include pretty much every cemetery. So if the cemetery was established between 1800 and 1900, this bill grants $5 per grave for maintenance. It is specifically targeted to black cemeteries. Now, this might not seem like a lot of money, $5 per grave. This is actually pretty standard for cemetery preservation bills because I've seen a few others in different states. It might not seem like a lot of money when you look at it like as $5 per grave. But when you take it as a lump sum, so say you have a thousand graves and you're getting $5 per grave, well, you get five grand. You can do something with that. And that's particularly important for a lot of these that may also be able to get other assistance because the fact is like money breeds more money. So if you want to apply for grants and things like that, so like having a little bit of seed money to do that with to maybe develop a plan, to hire somebody to help you develop a plan, because with a really good plan, you have a better chance of getting a grant, like, that does matter. In terms of preservation, that's the kernel, that's the seed that can really start things rolling. Likewise, you may have heard talk about this National Black Burial Ground or Cemeteries Network, And this is something that has been very much in the news for the past couple of years. And it actually starts in South Carolina. So that's kind of where the origins of this particular idea come from. And it starts out with the idea that, um, like, black cemeteries there are particularly neglected. (laughs) Big surprise certainly nothing new. Um, And so it kind of grew out of there. Um, It did pass the Senate unanimously. Again, it does not necessarily guarantee money to every cemetery, but what it does is it provides the groundwork that is going to be needed to create this national burial network so they can start a database. They can start references. They can start, it's good. This is all authorizing the department of the interior to do this to the national park service. So having a database that you can reference. So that way, like when people are doing searches for cemeteries, there's a place that they can look. Secondly, when people are looking for resources, they're looking for history, they can network and they can work through this. And by having more resources available, again, you can apply for grants. And that is the money that will really help with long-term preservation. So what started as just South Carolina has now been pushed to move to the whole country which I think it's still a little too early to see exactly where that's going to go, but it's definitely a promising step. And overall, like, I think I can definitively say that if this month has proved anything, it's that there is definitely more awareness of it. I think we still have a hell of a long way to go. But I think that more groups are getting involved I think preservation is becoming a priority. I think scholarship studying black burial practices is growing. Because one of the best ways to preserve material culture is to have people who are studying it, who are making observations. Now, 
Do I think that there's still a lot of underlying cultural problems that aren't going to be fixed overnight? Certainly. But hopefully this did help you understand that it's not a one-note problem, that there are a lot of things that drive this. So I wanted to close with a quote from Justice Dooley, who had been part of the decision um, in that long case that I was talking about with the separate mausoleums. And so Justice Dooling, in an off-sided concurrence in this area of jurisprudence, stated that he had to concur with the majority on Long, but he definitely could not. Quote, believe that a man's mortal remains will disintegrate any less peaceably because of the close proximity to the body of the member of another race. And in that inevitable disintegration, it is sure that the pigmentation of skin cannot long endure. The good people who insist on racial segregation of what is moral in a man may be shocked to learn when their own lives end that God has reserved no racially exclusive position for them in the hereafter. Whew, Justice Dooley laying down some hard truths. But seriously, I think at the end of the day, all of this stuff just seems so ridiculous. But the fact that it's still happening is even more ridiculous. So hopefully this gives you some perspective. The next time black cemeteries and the plight of black cemeteries comes up, you can have some tools under your belt to talk about how these misunderstandings happen, about how cultural changes have influenced that. And maybe to use that knowledge to maybe move forward and to try to come up with strategies that can better help protect and preserve black cemeteries. As always, if you are enjoying the podcast, please, I would love, love, love a rating and review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you are listening. They do make me much more visible. Five stars really helps me come up higher in searches um, and help people who are looking for information find it. So I do appreciate that. Follow along on social media, Tomb of the View podcast on Facebook and Instagram. I share lots of fun stuff pretty much every day. And uh, certainly if you are interested in this kind of stuff and if you're interested in visuals, it's definitely a good way to build your understanding and maybe connect a little bit more with some of the things that I share verbally over the podcast. Got some things in the works for next month. I'm excited. I'm going to be taking a little bit of a different bent. So things I'll be switching things up next month, Um, but I'm kind of excited about it. Um, In a good way, I have got some new stuff planned for social media, and also I have got a themed month for March. Um, I'll wait until next week to announce it, but I think it's going to be interesting because it's something that I don't know a lot about, so I'm hoping that I will learn a lot, and I feel like I actually do a better job presenting to you when I'm learning new things myself, so something to look forward to. But for now, I'm Liz Clavin, and this is Tomb with a View.